Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Mystery of the Grip of Death by Jacques Futrell, read by Perry F. Bruns, Part 3. A little drama of human emotion was being enacted in the tiny front suite. Frank Cunningham, wanted for the murder of Fred Boyd, sat wearily resigned in the corner furthest from the door under the watchful eye of Hutchinson Hatch. The man was unshaven, haggard, and there lay in his eyes the restless, feverish look of one who lives his life in terror of the law. Carolyn Pierce, who was to have been his wife, had flung herself on a couch, weeping hysterically. Towering above the slender, shrinking figure of the thinking machine, Miss Jarrett was bitterly denouncing him for a trick which had given Cunningham into his hands. The scientist listened patiently, albeit unhappily. He couldn't help himself. 
You told me, stormed Miss Jared, that you believed him innocent, and now this, this. Well, said the thinking machine meekly. Miss Jared was about to say something else when Cunningham stopped her with a gesture. I'm rather glad of it, he said, or rather I would be if it were not for her, and he indicated Carolyn Pierce. I have never spent such hours of mortal fear as those since the murder of Fred Boyd. Now somehow it's a relief to know how it must all come out. You know you are a fool to try to hide anyway, said the thinking machine, frankly. I know I made a mistake, now, replied Cunningham. But we were afraid, Carolyn and I, and I couldn't help it. Well, go on with your story, commanded the scientist testily. Manning, the other reporter, crossed the room and sat beside Hatch, while Cunningham moved over, took a seat beside the couch where the girl lay weeping and gently stroked her hair. I'll tell what story I can, he said at last. I don't know what you'll think of it, but pardon me just a moment, said the thinking machine. He went to Cunningham and ran his long slender fingers over the prisoner's head several times. Suddenly he leaned forward and squinted at Cunningham's head. What is this? he asked. That is where a silver plate was put in, Cunningham replied. I was badly injured by a fall when I was about fourteen years old. Yes, yes said the scientist. Go on with your story. I have known Boyd since we were boys together up in Vermont, Cunningham said, and there too I knew Carolyn. All three of us came from the same little town, Carolyn only two years ago. Boyd and I had been in Boston for several years when she came. Boyd lived for five years in that, that room in South Boston where... Never mind, said the thinking machine. Go on. Well, Carolyn came here two years ago, as I said, and I believe that Boyd loved her as well as I do, said Cunningham. But she promised to be my wife, and we were to be married next Wednesday. But the night Boyd was killed, interrupted the thinking machine impatiently. Come down to that. I went down to Boyd's room that night at a few minutes after eight o'clock. We sat for an hour or more and talked of our work, our plans, and various things as we played cards. Pinochle it was. Neither of us was particularly interested in the game. Boyd didn't know of my coming marriage to Carolyn, and finally I happened to mention her name. I also showed him the wedding ring I had bought that day for her. He looked at it and asked me what I intended to do with it. I then told him that Carolyn and I were to be married. He was surprised. I think any man in his position would have been surprised— because I think it was his intention to ask her to marry him. Well, at any rate, he grew angry about it, and I tried to placate him. I guess he was pretty hard hit, worse than I thought. For several times between the deals, he picked up the ring and looked at it, then he put it down each time on his side of the table. After a while, he threw down his hand with the remark that he didn't care to play. Now look here, Fred, I said. I didn't think of the thing hitting you so hard. He replied something about it not being fair to him, though just what he meant I didn't know. Then word led to word, until finally I was in a fury at a careless reference he made to Carolyn, a thing he would never have thought of doing in his proper senses, and demanded an apology. He grew ugly and said still more, 
and then somehow I don't know quite what happened. I know that I had an insane desire to take hold of him, but... Cunningham paused and gently stroked the hand of the girl. And then? asked the thinking machine. You know this hurt on my head was more serious than you may imagine, said Cunningham. There are times, in moments of anger particularly, when things are not clear to me. I lose myself. I don't know what to do. A surgeon once explained to me why it was, but I don't remember. I understand, said the thinking machine. Go on. Well, from the moment the quarrel became really serious, I would not swear to anything that happened, Cunningham resumed. I know at last I found myself in the lower hall after what seemed a long time, and I remember leaving there, slamming the door behind me. I went down the avenue and was almost home when it occurred to me that the ring was in Boyd's room. By that time, too, I was seeing things more clearly. I wanted to go back and talk to Boyd more calmly and see if both of us hadn't said things we should not have said. It was with this double purpose of seeing him and getting the ring that I started back to the tenement. Outside, I found a crowd. I wondered why and asked. One man told me Boyd had been murdered, choked to death, that the police knew who did it and were searching for him. I was terror-stricken and after the body was taken out, I walked away. The terror was on me, and after I turned into a side street, I broke into a run. I knew myself, you see, and my own irresponsibility. Then, although it was midnight, I came straight here, aroused Carolyn and Miss Jared, and told them both what had happened so far as I knew. There seemed to be nothing else to do but hide. I did it. I remained here, as I thought, safely enough. Two or three reporters came and asked questions, and once a detective was here, but Miss Jarrett answered their inquiries satisfactorily, and that seemed to be all, until now. Tomorrow, Carolyn and I were going back to Vermont. There was a long pause. Carolyn pressed the hand of the man she loved to her cheek with a gesture of infinite confidence. The thinking machine sat silent with the tips of his long, slender fingers together. "'Mr. Cunningham,' he said at last, "'you have not told us the one vital thing. Did you, or did you not, kill Fred Boyd?' "'I don't know,' was the reply. "'If I only could know.' "'Ah,' grunted the thinking machine, "'I was afraid you wouldn't know.' Hutchinson Hatch and Manning, the other reporter, gazed at Cunningham thunderstruck, and from him to the thinking machine. "'Don't know whether or not you killed a man?' asked Hatch incredulously. "'It's perfectly possible, Mr. Hatch,' said the thinking machine curtly. "'I understand, Mr. Cunningham,' he explained. "'I suppose you would be perfectly willing to go with me now?' "'No! No! No!' exclaimed Carolyn Pierce suddenly, in evident terror. "'Not to the police, Miss Pierce,' said the thinking machine. He paused a moment and looked at the girl curiously. Of women he knew nothing, and knew he knew nothing. "'Perhaps it would assure you, Miss Pierce, if I told you I know that Mr. Cunningham did not kill Boyd.' "'You believe he didn't, then?' she asked eagerly. "'I know he didn't.' said the thinking machine tersely. 
Two and two make four, not sometimes, but all the time, he went on enigmatically. If Mr. Cunningham will come with me now, we will establish beyond all doubt the cause of Boyd's death. Do you believe me? Yes, said the girl slowly, and she looked steadily into the squint eyes of the scientist. I... I have faith in you. The thinking machine coughed, slightly embarrassed, and turned to Hatch with a faint color in his cheeks. "'Well, who did kill Boyd?' asked Hatch, amazed. "'That's what we will now demonstrate,' was the reply. "'Come on!' After Cunningham had himself assured the girl of his safety, the four men passed out into the night. It was nearly ten o'clock, entered a cab, and were driven to the tenement in South Boston. There they passed up the one flight of stairs into the room where Boyd had been found, and after lighting the gas the scientist made one quick survey of the room. "'These walls are awfully thin,' he commented petulantly. "'If I should fire a pistol in here I might kill someone in another room. Yes, a knife would do better. Have any of you gentlemen a knife, one with a blade that won't break easily?' "'Will this do?' asked Cunningham, and he produced one. The thinking machine examined it and nodded his satisfaction. "'Now a revolver,' he said. Manning went out to get one. While he was gone, the thinking machine gave some formal instructions to Cunningham and Hatch. "'I'm going to put out this light and remain in this room alone,' he said. "'I may be here fifteen minutes, or I may be here till daylight. I don't know.' "'But I want you three to remain quietly outside the door and listen. "'When I need you, I shall need you quickly. "'My life may be in danger, and I am not a strong man.' "'What is it, anyway?' asked Hatch, curiously. "'After a while you will hear something inside, I have no doubt,' "'went on the scientist, paying no attention to the question. "'But don't enter the room under any circumstances "'until I call out or you hear a struggle.' "'But what is it?' asked Hatch again. I don't understand at all. I'm going to find the murderer of Fred Boyd, said the scientist. Please do not ask so many absurd questions. They annoy me exceedingly. I may have to kill him, he added reflectively. Kill him? gasped Hatch. Who, the murderer? He couldn't help it. Yes, the murderer, was the tart reply. Manning returned with the revolver, which the thinking machine examined and handed to Hatch. "'You will know what to do with it when you enter the room,' he instructed. "'You, Manning, come in with these other two and light this gas. Keep your matches in your hand.' Then the two reporters and Cunningham passed out of the room, closing the door but not fastening it. Pressed close against the panels outside, listening, Hatch started to explain to Manning in a whisper when they heard the irritated voice of the scientist. "'Keep silent,' was the sharp command. Five minutes. Ten minutes. Half an hour of utter silence, save for a distant sound of some sort in the big tenement. But no one came up the stairs. The dim gas light fluttered weirdly down the hall. A full hour passed. Still nothing. Hatch could hear his heart beat, also, he thought the regular breathing of the thinking machine. At last there came a slight sound, and Hatch started. The other men heard, too. 
It was a faint whispering sound, as of the wind rustling through dead leaves, or the silken swish of skirts, or the gasp of a dying man. Hatch clutched the revolver more firmly and set his teeth hard together. He was going to face something, a deadly, terrible something, and had not the faintest idea of what it might be. Manning held a match ready for instant use. Then, as they listened, there was another sound, still faint, as if something sliding over the floor. Suddenly there was a heavy thump, a half-strangled cry from the thinking machine and the sounds of a fearful struggle. Hatch rushed into the room with revolver raised. Manning was just behind him. A match flared up and they saw a struggling heap on the floor. The arm of the scientist rose and fell thrice, burying the knife each time in flesh. In the light of the gas, which hissed into a brilliant light under the match, the reporter placed the revolver flat against the head of a writhing, twisting body and fired. For the second time he fired and the struggling bodies lay still. Then, for the first time, Hatch realized what had happened. A giant boa constrictor held the thinking machine in its coils and was in its death struggle almost crushing the life out of him. It required the combined efforts of the three men to release the scientist from the deadly folds. He lay still for a moment, but finally the life came back into his frail body with a rush. He raised up from Hatch's arms and looked curiously at the snake. "'Dear me, dear me,' he commented. "'What a brain would have been lost to scientific inquiry if that snake had killed me!' Occupants of the house, aroused by the two pistol shots, rushed again terror-stricken to the room, and after a while the police came and rescued the four men from the besieging mob of questioners. All went to the police station, and there the thinking machine, with several caustic comments on the police in general, told his story. The body of the giant reptile lay full length on the floor. "'Mr. Hatch here asked for my advice in the matter,' he explained to the police captain, "'and I did what I could to assist him.' When he explained the condition of the body and the room when it was broken open, the fact the door and both windows were fastened securely inside, it instantly occurred to me that, with suicide removed as a possibility, the thing which had killed Boyd was still in the room or else had escaped only after the body was found. It was not unreasonable to suppose that any animal, a snake for instance, would have attempted to leave the room while a crowd of people blocked the door. In fact, it was not unreasonable to suppose that such a snake, snugly fixed in a large tumble-down building, with the infinite possibility of feeding on rats and mice, would attempt to leave the building at all. It could get water easily from a dozen places. Therefore I presumed it was a snake, and I asked Mr. Hatch to ascertain for me first if the people in the house had ever been greatly annoyed by rodents, if they were now, and if not, when they had noticed that they were not. He reported to me that they had been annoyed up to a fortnight preceding the crime, but since they had not noticed. Of course a boa constrictor can live on rodents, therefore they would leave the building or be eaten out of it gradually. A fortnight since they missed the rodents— that meant that the snake must have been in the building at least that long. All these conclusions I reached before I personally went over the scene. If it were a snake, as I thought possible, 
It must have come from somewhere. Where, then? The thinking machine paused and looked from one to another of his hearers. Each in turn shook his head, Hatch being the last to do so. And yet your own paper published a full solution of the mystery before it's ever occurred, said the scientist sharply. Looking from the back window of the room there, perfectly visible, were three banked rings plainly where a circus had been. Possibly the snake escaped from that circus and crept into the house. I called up your office on the phone, Mr. Hatch, and ascertained that there had been a circus on that place two weeks before, November 9th and 10th, and further I found that a boa constrictor had escaped from that circus. You printed a column of it on the first page. Lord, and we really thought that was a press agent's yarn, remarked Hatch sadly. Tonight, when we went to the room, it was my intention to allow the snake to creep out of that large hole near the radiator. I suppose you noticed there was one there. Then to pass between the snake and the hole and call for Mr. Hatch and these other gentlemen who were waiting outside the door. If the snake attacked me, I had a knife and Mr. Hatch had a revolver. But I'm afraid I didn't give the snake credit for quickness and such enormous strength, he went on ruefully. I heard the snake come out of the hole, and then instantly almost I felt its folds crushing me. Then these gentlemen rushed in. I can readily understand how it choked Boyd, he having no way to defend himself, and then crawled away when those people knocked on the door. It nearly crushed the life out of me. That seemed to be all, and the thinking machine stopped. Or Frank Cunningham? asked the police captain. Why did he run away, and where is he now? Cunningham, repeated the scientist, puzzled. Yes, said the captain. Where is he? Why, here he is, and the thinking machine indicated the accused man. Mr. Cunningham, permit me to introduce you to Captain, uh, uh, I don't know his name. The captain was not surprised. He was nonplussed. It had never occurred to him to ask the name of the fourth member of the party. He knew the two newspaper men. How? Where? When did you? Not knowing whether or not he had killed his friend Boyd, explained the scientist, he was hiding in the suite of Miss Carolyn Pierce, his fiancée. His lack of knowledge was due entirely to a queer mental condition. He was badly hurt at one time and wears a silver plate in his head. That accounts for many things. How did you get him? asked the captain, amazed. I walked into Miss Pierce's suite after I had put a man at the back and front to stop anyone who ran out, and told Miss Pierce's friend, Miss Jared, that I believed, in fact, knew, that Cunningham was innocent, and that I had come merely to warn him, said the thinking machine. I told her then that three policemen were at the front door, and then Mr. Manning here rang the bell violently as I had instructed him, and Cunningham dashed out of a rear room and started out the back way. Mr. Hatch got in there. It was perfectly simple, that part of it. Of course, there was a chance that he wasn't there at all, but he was. The thinking machine arose. Is that all? he asked. Why did you examine Cunningham's head before he told us his story? asked Hatch. I have some idea of the cranial formation of criminals, and I merely wanted to satisfy myself, said the scientist. 
It was then that I discovered the silver plate in his head. And this? asked Hatch. He took from his pocket the sealed envelope which the thinking machine had given him in the tenement room immediately after he had inspected the room. On this envelope was written November 9, 10, this being the date the circus was in South Boston. Oh, that, said Professor Van Dusen a little impatiently, that is merely a solution to the mystery. Hatch opened the envelope and looked at it. There were only a few words. Snake came through hole near radiator, lived in walls, escaped from circus, Cunningham innocent. That all? again asked the thinking machine. There was no answer, and the scientist and the two newspaper men left the police station, followed by Cunningham. That's the end of The Mystery of the Grip of Death by Jacques Futrelle here on Calm Mystery. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production, part of American Immersion Theater, Scott Crampton, Executive Producer. Our editor is Audra Schildhouse. Join us soon for another spine-tingling story. In the meantime, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Calm Mystery on your favorite podcast app. And share us with a dear friend or enemy. Until next time, stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, Maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.